And last week, Paul DeVries looked with us at uh, the middle part of, of Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 41, where we saw the apostles' second trial before the uh, Jewish religious council, the Sanhedrin. And so we're going to back up now this morning, and, and we're going to pick up with verses um, 12 to 16, what happened right before that, and then also what happened after that. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus the hero and his men face many dangers and challenges and adventures on their way home from battle. And one is a stop in the land of the lotus eaters. When the ship lands on this island, Odysseus sends some men out to explore the island. And along the way, these men meet some local people who are friendly and who are kind. And these peaceful people have the unique habit of munching on the lotus flowers which grow on the island and they share some of these with Odysseus's men well when Odysseus's men eat them right away they start to grow peaceful and content so much so that they totally forget their purpose and, and they forget who they are and they have no more desire to leave the island or to complete their mission or to get home In fact, to rescue them, Odysseus winds up having to drag drag them back to the ship to chain them there on the ship because they don't want to be there and to sail away. And, And so let me ask you, have you ever forgotten? Have you ever forgotten your purpose? Have you ever forgotten your identity? Have you ever forgotten something deep and important that you should remember? I have. Have the worries of life or or the values of everyone around you or the allurements of the culture caused you to forget something deeper and more important? Maybe a value or a belief. Maybe a deep and poignant longing. Maybe a hope or a joy or a dream. Have you ever forgotten well, today in the book of Acts, we're, we're once again looking at one of the, the summaries that Luke pauses periodically to give us. And each summary is, is a picture, a portrait, a description of what the early believers in Jesus were like and of what God was doing among them. And each is meant to be a reminder. Each is meant to wake us up as God's people to our identity to what it means to be the community of those who follow Jesus, to wake us up and remind us of what God can still do in us and through us, as Barbara reminded us this morning. So let's take a look at what we learn about these early believers in these verses. And as we do, we're meant to compare ourselves, to compare our church to these early believers that we're reading about. Which isn't to say that we're supposed to be exactly like them. That's not the point. What Luke is giving us here is just one picture of one group of early believers. In this case, the early Jerusalem church. They're Jewish. They're meeting at the temple. They're living in Roman times. They're brand new as a community. They have not matured yet. They're unique in that their leaders had all known Jesus Christ personally. Later in Acts and and throughout the New Testament, we see other pictures of other churches, and they're not all the same by any means. But nevertheless, why does Luke 
tell us about these believers if the telling does not invite some comparison? If it's not to wake us up afresh to something of who we are and what our purpose is and what is possible when God is present and at work among us. And I see six qualities here of, of these communities of early disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem. So let's take a look at the six, and we'll put up the first slide. First, they were led by apostolic leadership. We see that in verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. We've noticed before the fact that Jesus chose apostles to lead his people. And it's such a familiar fact that we don't often stop and think about it or think about what an apostle is. Apostles are sent ones. Apostles are those sent on a mission. Jesus did not choose shepherds to lead his followers. He did not choose teachers. He chose, first and foremost, apostles. Why? Because Jesus has sent his whole church on a mission. To be witnesses to the world of who Jesus is and what he's done. They're to witness first in Jerusalem. We saw this back in Acts 1. Then later we're going to see in Judea and Samaria. And then finally to the ends of the earth. And if God's people are to fulfill this mission, they need missional leaders out in front leading by example. And we've seen repeatedly already in Acts how the apostles do this, witnessing both in deed and in word through show and through tell. Powerfully performing signs and wonders and boldly proclaiming the news of what they've seen and heard. Here we see the people of God are being led by bold, powerful, apostolic leadership. And so, as we compare, what about today? Do we see... Um, or do we seek out to lead us just kind and caring shepherds who will comfort us and counsel us? Or just insightful teachers who will educate and inform us? Or are we also looking for leaders and encouraging our leaders to be bold and mission-minded? To be full of faith, to be growing in spiritual power along with humility. You know, I'm very aware of, of my own lack in some of these areas, and I'm seeking to grow in them. Because the truth is, I didn't grow up in churches where I saw such leaders, or I had such examples. And seminary didn't challenge me or teach me much about growing in these areas. And it's not particularly what most of the churches I've been a part of have called out of me or expected from me. But apostolic leadership is absolutely what the church still desperately needs today. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have 12, you know, big A apostles, but I'm talking about apostolic leadership. If we're going to remember our identity and if we're going to fulfill our missional purpose in the world, we need this kind of leadership. Second, the second quality of these early community this early community of Jesus' followers. They were a tight-knit community. The NIV translation of verse 12, they used to meet together, I don't think does it justice. I think the King James is a better translation here. They were with one accord. 
The Greek word being translated here, meet together or one accord, it's a favorite word of Luke, and he uses it a lot in the book of Acts. Listen to how Luke uses it. Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.1, they were all together in one place. Acts 2.46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Acts 4.24, they raised their voices together in prayer. The early followers of Jesus were a tight-knit group. They liked to get together and to talk to God together. Also, they shared their possessions with one another generously, as we saw several weeks ago. They were a new family knit together by the common bond that they had in Jesus Christ. How about us? Are we a collection of lone Christians who happen to gather on a Sunday when it's convenient? Or do we see ourselves as a very real and genuine extended family, those that Christ has called together to himself and to one another as we pursue him and his mission in the world? If we are a family, it will affect our lives and our time and our money and our relationships as it did for the early believers. Third quality of the early believers They were both attractive and repellent. (laughs) Verses 13 and 14. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You know, commentators, they struggle with these verses. How can it be, they ask, if no one dared to join them, that more and more were added to their number? (laughs) It's a bit of a tension, right? (laughs) And the tension, I think, is Luke's point. That these early believers both attracted people and repelled people. We can understand the repel part. What story comes immediately before today's story? If you look in your Bible, you remember back a few weeks, Ananias and Sapphira. They dropped dead, right? Evidently struck down by God for faking it, for being pretenders, for being hypocrites. And word got around, no doubt, and everyone is afraid. Don't get too close to that group. The living God is really there in their midst. If you get too close, who knows what might happen? So they repelled people. Then there was also the fear of how the authorities viewed these believers. The apostles had already been hauled before the Jerusalem council once and ordered not to talk about Jesus anymore. And as we saw, uh, as Paul DeVries looked at us with us last week, the, the passage just ahead of today's passage, this is about to happen again. And so the followers of Jesus are on the cult list. They're on the banned list of the religious experts. The official religious word about them is that they are sketchy at best and dangerous at worst. And so for all these reasons, the group is repellent. But nevertheless, they are also attractive. They're exciting. They're compelling. Why? Well, two major reasons. And these two reasons which Luke gives us point out to us. uh, um, I'm sorry. Luke points out these, these two major reasons to us over and over again in the opening chapters of Acts. These are the the same two reasons that held true for decades and even centuries to come, according to church historians. 
The life together of Jesus' followers had two pronounced qualities wherever they were to be found. One was the power that was at work in and through them. The healings, the exorcisms, the transformed and changed lives. The people who found freedom and new life. As people found healing and and wholeness, as their spiritual blockages and bondages were broken, there was power among these people, good power, power to heal, to free, to make whole. This is something which is still true today in the church around the world. But we happen to live in a little bit of a dead zone, being here in respectable, middle-class, white, Protestant Christianity, where we experience God's power less than most. And I know that isn't even true for all of you, but for some folks here, our, our experience has been very minimal of God's power. Why? Well, I think it's because we're less interested in power and we're more interested in truth. We, we don't sing songs very often like there's power in the blood or the battle belongs to the Lord. And, and when we preach the gospel, we, we focus on Jesus' sacrifice for sins and we explore the meaning of words like justification and propitiation while we focus less on how the cross was a mighty victory against the enemy, which broke the back of evil and opened the gates of hell. We focus more on truth and less on power. Well, the early church, they cared about both. They certainly cared about truth, and we should as well. But there was also great power at work among them. Jesus was radically transforming their lives and through them powerfully touching the lives of many others and everyone around them knew it. And so they were attractive. The second quality the early believers exhibited, which also made them attractive and compelling, was their sacrificial generosity and care. As we've seen, the early believers were literally family together and so they took care of one another like family. We've seen in chapters 2 and 4 already their generosity in helping one another. We also know from church history in the early church, again, for the first few centuries, that it was just expected that to be a Christian meant that you would visit other believers when they were thrown in prison and you would minister to their needs, even if it was dangerous or costly to yourself. That you would care for orphans and widows that you would rescue and raise infants that were discarded by your pagan neighbors, either literally left on street corners or thrown in the garbage. This was just what it meant to follow Jesus. And if you weren't ready to live this way, you weren't ready to follow Jesus. You know, one of the reasons that the early church grew so rapidly over the course of the first few centuries was that a number of times in those years, terrible deadly plagues hit various Roman cities. And, and people uh, at that time were, were terrified of these plagues, and rightly so. And so at first sign of the plague, everyone who could afford it fled the cities for the countryside. They just picked up and left. All of the leaders, the, the mayors, the city council, all of the doctors, the sick and the poor were just left alone to waste away with no one to care for their needs. But guess who stayed? The Christians stayed. 
They nursed and they prayed for the sick and they cared for the ill. They risked and in many cases gave their lives for one another and for their neighbors. And as a result, there came to be many grateful recipients of their care who survived because of the nursing care that they received and the prayer that they received. And many of these people came to Christ. And others thought they were crazy. (laughs) But they were strangely attracted to them and they wanted to know more of what would motivate these people to lay down their lives for others like this. The life of the early Christians was attractive. So, question about us. Do we both attract and repel? And if we do, is it for the same reasons as the early believers? I'm afraid too often it isn't. They repelled people because the religious establishment was against them. We repel people because we are viewed as the religious establishment. And people fear that we're trying to legislate our views on everyone else. They repelled people because they were powerless and vulnerable and likely to be persecuted. We repel people because of our power politics. As we elect even presidents. And we try to secure our safety and our prosperity no matter what the cost. They repelled people because word got around that it was not safe for hypocrites among them. We repel people because... People's perception is there are far too many hypocrites in the church and even among its leaders. We also attract people for different reasons than they did. We seek to attract people through nicer buildings, better programs, slicker music, more inspiring messages. They had few of these resources. They attracted people because they lived like family with sacrificial generosity and because God's power was at work among them to bring about miracles of healing and deliverance and transformation. Boy, I hope this is convicting. It's convicting to me. As we, as, as the church, look at the reputation we've earned in our culture compared to how the early believers were viewed by their culture as, as they follow Jesus faithfully, I hope we can see how different we have become in many ways from them. All right, let's move on to the fourth quality that Luke describes in the early followers of Jesus. They were missional. Verse 14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And verse 42, the apostles never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. New converts were joining their movement all the time And these weren't churchgoers who'd been attracted away from the church down the street by a better worship band or a better kids program. No, these were unbelievers whose lives were being transformed as they met Jesus for the first time. These early believers were busy. They were active, letting others know about Jesus. We've touched in it already that that they did this through both word and deed, through show and tell, through the message that they spoke, but also the compelling lives that they lived. This church was going out into their community, showing and telling the good news of Jesus. And as a result, many were joining them. They were growing, growing, growing. We've seen it. 120, 3,000, 5,000, still growing. How different from most churches today? And even our congregation, we've been in this log cabin 50 years, right? 
Haven't outgrown it yet. Meanwhile, they didn't own a building. They had to meet together in the temple. It was the only place big enough to hold all of them. And so they met there in public, though the temple authorities were hostile and though they risked arrest and persecution. Beyond the temple, they also met, they crammed into their homes, small house churches all over Jerusalem. In verse 42, we read that the apostles were going around from house to house, teaching all of these groups, maybe 30 or 40 in each, crammed into various homes. Later on, they're going to get kicked out of the temple, and then we'll see they only will meet in homes. And missional house churches, we'll see, are the primary form of church as the gospel moves out into the Roman world. They were missional. Fifth quality of these early believers. They were honored to be shamed. We see this down in verse 41. After the apostles had been for a second time called before the religious leaders of of God's people. We looked at that last week. They've been rebuked. They've been warned to stop talking about Jesus. And this time they're punished. Literally, they're flogged. They're whipped. And how do they respond? They rejoice because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Remember that they live in a shame culture. Middle Eastern culture. What do people in this kind of culture fear more than anything else? More than poverty, more than tragedy, more often than death itself. They fear being put to shame, having their reputation ruined in the eyes of their community. They fear having happened to them what has just happened to the apostles. To be disciplined and whipped and called out as antisocial, as criminals, as troublemakers, as public nuisances. This is a fate worse than than death in that culture. More than the physical pain of flogging was the social pain for these people of being rejected and sanctioned publicly. And yet the apostles glory in being shamed. They count it an honor. They are honored to be dishonored. What a contradiction. What an upside-down perspective. It's one that they learned from Jesus, their master, whose glory was found in a cross, the utter shame of public execution. You see, to follow Jesus, we have to learn to stop caring so much about what people think of us and to start finding honor and satisfaction in what God thinks of us. That's what the apostles have learned, and it has made them bold and fearless and joyful. Because they're free. What can man do to them? They've lost everything for Christ. What can anyone take away? They long for honor in that culture, but they have Christ's honor. They have the honor of the highest king. And so who cares what those who are quickly fading away think of them? And so you have this sense that they're having the time of their lives. All right, let's focus now sixth, finally, on the time we have left, on the biggest and most striking quality of the early believers in this passage, in this summary. We've already touched on it. It's the amazing miracles. Verse 12 again. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. 
in verses 15 to 16. As a result of, of how quickly the number of believers was growing, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Incredible, right? You read this. Doesn't it just remind you of Jesus, though? It's meant to. Mark 6.56. And wherever Jesus went, into villages, towns, and countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. And now we see Peter is functioning like Jesus, his mentor, his rabbi. Remember what Jesus had told his followers, not just Peter, but all who believed in him in John 14, 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And it's happening for Peter. Not because he's an apostle, not because he's Jesus' top lieutenant, but according to John 14, 12, because he believes in Jesus. He has faith. And and we'll see as the story goes on, it's not just Peter. It's the other apostles too. And it's not just the 12 apostles. It's others as well. Philip, Ananias, Paul, of course, Barnabas, Silas. Through all of them, Jesus does miracles. And, And these miracles here through Peter are astounding, even for the book of Acts. Crowds of people from all over are gathering. They're lining the streets in hope that even Peter's shadow might fall on them. People believed uh, uh, commonly at that time that your shadow was somehow part of you. And so to touch the shadow was to touch the person. And I guess God's like, well, all right, I'll work with that. And Luke says all of them were healed. Not just a few. Not just those who have enough faith. No, all of them are healed. Does it trouble you that that we don't see more of this today? It it troubles me. Many of us have seen miracles, right? Barbara told one story this morning and, and we could tell others. We have prayed for people and God has healed them. Sometimes in miraculous ways where a doctor gave a cancer diagnosis and, and said, you have no chance. And um, yet those we know and we love and Barbara told a couple of these stories completely recovered and the doctor said I can't believe it I can't explain it remember Peter quoting Joel back in Acts 2 in the last days God says I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below And so this phrase, signs and wonders, it comes up again and again in the book of Acts. That's what's happening here in Acts, in fulfillment of prophecy. It's what God said would happen in the last days. And it's happening. The ministry of Jesus, the casting out of demons, the healing of the sick. Jesus is continuing to do it through his, or by his spirit, through his people. And so I hope the book of Acts raises our level of expectation to ask for more, to seek more. I know we wonder why we don't see more. And we we have many explanations of that. But to ask for more, 
to seek more, to press into God, and to get to know his word, to get to know Jesus so that our faith grows, and so that we have the courage to ask, to pursue, to expect. So six qualities we see among these early believers to remind us of who we are as Jesus followers. Because we forget. We forget who we are. And to remind us of what God can do in us and through us to wake us up. So we see apostolic leadership. We see tight-knit community. We see a group of people who are both attractive and repellent. We see that they're missional. We see that they're honored to be ashamed. And we see amazing miracles. And interestingly, they all sound a whole lot like Jesus. So as we close, um, let's pray. And um, I want to invite you to take a second to listen And ask God, God, what are you reminding me of this morning that maybe I've forgotten? Take a minute just silently to ask God that and to listen.